Well, I'm excited to uh, teach all of us this morning. Uh, I've learned quite a bit, um, and I have a sermon prepared on uh, the idea of Christ alone, but I saw this set design um, when I rolled into church, and I figured I would do a monologue of Fiddler on the Roof instead. <laughs> so if you got two hours, um, buckle up, and we're going to do that. Just kidding. Uh, a couple rules. You have to laugh at my jokes. They're going to be really dry and weird. Um, but you got to roll with it. So um, I'm excited uh, to teach uh, today. Uh, it's the year 2017. Hopefully you know that. Um, which marks 500 years after um, the famed Martin Luther uh, posted his 95 theses or um, a disputation on the practice that the church had called indulgences, which was basically purchasing the forgiveness of sins for you uh, or another person. Um, and Luther saw this as a very corrupt practice of the church. And while the Reformation really started before that and is really continuing on uh, today, um, that's kind of just been the, the single mark of uh, when we're deciding the Reformation, quote, began. And so this year, really October 31st, so two days from now, we're celebrating uh, the day Martin Luther accomplished that. And so Antioch, wanting to uh, ground ourselves in the history of our faith and broaden our perspective kind of b beyond just American Christianity, have decided to dive into the Reformation and really have uh, governed this sermon series around the five solas, which are really marks and values that in hindsight um, came out of the Reformation and the Reformers' teaching. Um, and today we're going to cover Christ alone, which is the second part. Um, last week, uh, Pete um, covered Scripture alone um, as really the starting point and ending point for our epistemology, or how we determine what is true. Um, and so the Reformers were kind of viewing Scripture alone um, as that mark. And today uh, we're going to talk about Christ alone. So you guys ready for this? All right. If you would, would you turn in your Bibles with me uh, to Galatians chapter 1? We'll be looking at the first, uh, the first verses there. All right. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, hold that place. I want to set the stage for the what the idea of Christ alone is reacting against. So if the reformers and us today are declaring Christ alone, we have a couple questions, as opposed to what, right? What else um, are we adding to Christ? And then in what capacity? Christ alone for what? What is that gaining for us? And so I want to give a little history of uh, Martin Luther. Um, and in 1505, as you might know, he was caught in a thunderstorm. He was studying to be a lawyer, and he cried out to a saint, if you save me from this thunderstorm, uh, I will become a month, a monk, not a month. That's different. I will become a monk. Um, and so, lo and behold, Martin Luther is saved. He stays true to his word, which is not very 
pleasing for his father, who's paying for his lawyer uh, degree, um, his law degree. And, uh, and so Luther enters an Augustinian cloister and becomes a monk. And one thing about Luther is that he does everything 110%. And so he was going to be the best lawyer. Now he set out to be the best monk. And so the, the theological ecosystem of the day was one that Luther dove headfirst into and really actualized to the fullest extent. And so practices of a monk like asceticism or denying yourself food or comfort or certain things that you and I enjoy um, for the purpose of pursuing Christ was something Luther did um, to, to the max, so much so that he was probably near death um, quite a bit of time. And one of his practices was this idea, was this practice of confession. Um, and so he would go to his confessor, uh, whose last name is Stalpitz, Johann, Johann von Stalpitz, if you care. And he would confess for hours and hours and hours and hours all of his sins. He would leave the, the confessional and he would feel the, the slightest bit of pride. And so he would jump right back in and start all over again. And Stalpitz is like, dude, you're killing me right now, right? Like, you don't need to be uh, this extreme. But there was something about what the church was portraying of how we relate to Jesus that led Luther um, to these extreme ascetic practices and really to despair. Um, there's a quote he has, it's very famous, where he basically concludes, like, love God? Like, I don't love God. I actually, I actually hate God. Um, God is not my friend. The gospel is not good news. Um, and so Stalpitz says, go teach the Bible so you stop doing this because you're crazy. Um, in 1508, he goes to, to Erfurt, um, or the University of Wittenberg to become an instructor. In 1509, he gets his bachelor's degree. In 1512, he gets his doctor of theology when he's 29 years old. So you should feel good about your life. Um, smart guy. A lot of these reformers are really smart guy. And so um, recently, uh, some of the Antioch church leaders got to go to Italy and Rome, uh, Italy and Rome, Italy and Germany, um, to discover, guys, this is, this is rough so far. I, <laughs> I'm not a that good a public speaker, but so I have a picture of St. Peter's Basilica, which is something that uh, we got to see, um, and this is kind of the, you'd be sitting in the pews and looking up at, at this massive cathedral, one uh, that the money from indulgences helped build, one that Luther visited and reacted very strongly against um, the way the church was functioning. And so um, the environment that uh, someone who says, hey, I want to follow Jesus, lived in, is you go to church and this is kind of what you see. Um, you're very far away um, from Jesus, and in between you and Jesus would be the priest um, or the pope or any type of mediator surrounding the throne or the saints of the church. Um, and the service is very sacramental and based on tradition, and so the environment that Martin Luther and the reformers were trying to reform was one that added things to, to the work of Christ um, in, order to find, in order to find salvation. And so um, this left Luther viewing the good news of Jesus as pretty bad news. Um, and we're actually probably um, pretty familiar with that today, right? That the way that... Um, our works and who we're trusting in enters into the way we view and follow Jesus. Um, so secondly, the art of the time also conveyed that. So here's um, a painting by Raphael. It's an altarpiece. 
Um, and you'll see Jesus with some angels and some cool writing on the top. Uh, to the right in the back is Mary. To the left in the back is actually uh, John the Baptist, though he looks much like a woman there. Um, in front of him is Mary, in front of, on the right is Mary Magdalene, and then you have St. Jerome. Um, and so the, the, for someone who is illiterate and just a lay Christian to go to church, to live in the Christian culture, um, you are kind of entering into this ecosystem where um, Jesus Christ alone is not enough um, for your salvation. Um, and so the question we're going to look at today is, what hoops is it that we think we have to jump through in order to be okay with God? Um, and what does that look like in our lives? So I want to open up um, to the book of Galatians, um, where we were originally. Um, now, this book, to the Galatians, was um, written to a church that was really wrestling with the idea of the Jewish practice and circumcision added to the good news of Jesus, and Paul is reacting quite strongly uh, against this idea that um, someone who is a Gentile must be circumcised and enter Jewish practice in order to find salvation. And so uh, I want to keep this very simple uh, this morning and look just at the first part. So if you would, look at uh, verse 3 with me. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And if you're taking notes, here's the first thing I want you to write down, is that we are people who need to be rescued. We are people uh, who need to be rescued. It's a, looking, it's a look at the problem that Jesus has come um, to deliver or rescue or solve. And so that word right there, if you have the ESV, it says deliver. I think NIV and NLT would say the word rescue. Um, and so there's two things that Paul mentions that we need rescuing from. And the first one is that we need rescued from our sin. Um, like Adam and Eve, we are still guilty of the same way of going about life where we decide that God's way of living is not the way that we want to live, that we want to determine what's right and wrong. And so although God created this earth and built this kingdom for us to live in with him at the center, we say we'd rather not. Um, and we have a heart problem, we have a mind problem, we have an action problem, we have a love problem, um, where Christ is no longer at the center, um, but we are at the center. Um, and, and this means that we need um, to be rescued. We have guilt. Um, and we kind of live within the consequence of choosing our own way, which is really um, the present evil age that we live in. And so um, if you know about brokenness in our world, you know there's a rippling effect. Um, a decision that you make that doesn't honor God um, actually affects other people around you, which affects other people around them. Um, and kind of this, the world that we live in is groaning uh, to be redeemed um, through God. And so this is, the, this is the ecosystem that we live in. And, and a lot of times we go about proclaiming the good news um, as instructions of like, how, how do I get saved? And we, we think we need teaching. We think we need more self-discipline. We think we need to try harder. We need to wrestle with our emotions in a certain way, to feel a certain way about salvation. 
Um, but here Paul makes it pretty clear what you need, um, you need to be rescued. Um, and so as an illustration, um, I want you to imagine that you go out on a trip to the Oregon coast. Who likes the Oregon coast? It's not bad. Um, it's probably pretty cold waters right now. You need a wetsuit if you're going to surf. Now imagine you don't know how to swim, um, and it's nighttime, and you're on these cliffs, and there's a sign that says, please do not jump off the cliffs. Um, you're like, ah, I'd rather jump off the cliffs. Um, knowing that you can't swim, knowing that um, the way the world works is one where that's a bad decision, you actually decide to just dive in uh, to the icy cold waters of the beautiful Oregon coast at nighttime all by yourself. Um, and so imagine that scenario where you're treading water, uh, the waves keep crashing over you, and you're gasping for air. Um, and this is a picture of someone who needs to be rescued. Um, in this moment, we don't need instructions about how to swim. Um, we don't need reminders about how to try harder to swim right now. What we need is someone to jump in um, and save us and rescue us. And this is, this is the image that Paul is portraying. And the reason that's important is because if we come, if we start from a place where we believe that we have something to earn or within ourselves we have uh, merit to offer our salvation or like we have something within us that we need to conjure up to earn some status with Jesus, um, this is where a lot of the works-based uh, salvation teaching uh, kind of comes from. And there's a, a recent um, researcher named Christian Smith who writes a lot about emerging adults and young adults, and he um, goes on and talks about something called moralistic therapeutic deism. I'm not sure if you guys have ever heard of that. It's a big fancy word, moralistic therapeutic deism. And that, that term is describing what he views the young adults uh, who grew up in evangelical Christianity, that this is what you functionally believe based on how you live. And so the moralism part is that God um, has given us a set of laws and we're supposed to follow them. Um, the therapeutic part is that if we follow them, um, we will feel better or have a better life. And the deism part is the sense that there is a God who made these rules and kind of blesses us if we cohere to the, to the equation. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I feel like that has really entered into our culture today. Um, so I ask students a lot in youth ministry, like, how are you and God doing? You know, have I ever asked you guys that? Like, how are you and Jesus? Um, nine times out of ten, here's the answer I get. Well, I'm not really reading my Bible that much, and I'm not really praying, and I don't really feel like I want to do those things. Um, and so somehow... Um, as much as we can like, look back at um, 16th century uh, Roman Catholicism and be like, that's so weird that you guys are doing that, somehow our 13-year-olds and our 14-year-olds and our young adults have come to believe that like, being okay with Jesus is dependent on the desire and quantity of my Bible reading and my prayer life, right? Um, and these are our students, so you guys are great. Like, we all struggle with that. It's not a, not a crack on you. But if we're honest... Um, we often look to ourselves to find our own rescue. And if we're drowning and we can't swim and the water's cold, um, we need someone else to entirely rescue us. Um, and so we are tempted to become the who behind salvation rather than Christ. 
Secondly, if you're taking notes, um, Christ alone is the one who rescues. So I want you to, again, uh, look at verse 4. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our Father. Um, And look at that word, he gave himself. I've wrestled a lot um, in my life with kind of the equation-type gospel presentation that we give, whether it's a tract um, or the Roman's road or the picture of Jesus and the cross, like, wrestling thing. And I've been on airplanes, like the guilty teenager trying to share my faith on the airplane. I'm like, well, you kind of got to believe this. And then, like, magically, Jesus is like, you're cool, and then you get to go to heaven. And, like, it just, it just seems hollow. It seems very mathematical. It's like this algorithm that we must manipulate correctly in order to get um, the right equation. And I actually have a picture of um, a track based off the game Monopoly. Um, and here you go. Get out of hell free. Uh, this card may be kept until needed or sold. And then the, the, last, the little fine print is offer will expire when you do. <laughs> Nothing like some cheeky wit to save souls, right? Um, there's just so many things wrong with that, right? You should be cringing. Um, I think if you saw this in a bathroom, Jesus would be like, you should put that in the trash can. Um, you don't need to be reading that. And so we, I don't want to get too much into the how, but I have to talk a little bit about the how to talk about the who of salvation. That is Christ alone who saves us. Um, and the, the way this happens is that to stay in the kind of swimming metaphor, Jesus himself dives in to the water of someone who is able to save us. Um, and this weird way participates in our suffering and participates in our drowning. But through the power of God, um, kind of like resurrects and brings us with him and ascends to heaven and sits with God, the Trinity, in perfect harmony um, as a God-man. And it is only in him, it is only through our union with Jesus that he saves us and enters into our world and that we enter into the life and love of the Father, the same love that the Father has for the Son. Um, and so we're, we're looking at a scenario where the work of Christ is entirely sufficient. Um, he is our substitute. Um, and so I want to look, finally, at the third point, and that is our, our union with Christ and our adoption with God. Um, like I said earlier, well, actually... Let's look at this text here. Um, There's twice where Paul says that God is our Father. If you look at verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, um, according to the will of our God and our Father. Um, There's something very unique about the salvation that Christ offers that makes God no longer just the Father of Jesus, but our Father as well. That when Jesus instructs us to pray, he says to pray our Father in heaven. Um, and there, there's this idea 
um, of salvation that has really freed my understanding of what it means to be saved. And it's the idea of that we are unified or we participate in Christ. I mean, as much as we want to put trust in these certain doctrines that we believe a certain way, and that kind of like merits our guilt and Christ paid the penalty for our sins, there's all these atonement metaphors. Um, But I want to stress the fact that undergirding all of those is the fact that Christ has participated in our humanity, um, become one with us, and invited us to become one with him within his relationship to the Father. Does that make sense? And so all of these equations about what I give to what I get um, are kind of wrapped up in this idea of union with Christ. Um, So I want to read this quote from John Calvin, who was a French reformer um, and had a really cool beard um, and looks really mean all the time. But he wasn't. He was really smart. So here's, here's John Calvin in the third book, the opening line of, of the Institutes, um, which is an absolutely impressive work of theology considering the time period. Here's, here's what John Calvin says. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, to share in what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. For as I have said, all that he possesses is nothing until we grow into one body with him. So I want to talk a little bit about this equation of salvation. So um, Mary Joy, if you go back to the one that kind of is the Roman Catholic view with the priests and the tradition. And so, um, as a preface, this is a very simplified uh, view of Roman Catholic teaching. Um, I appreciate a lot of what the Catholic Church is today. I think we have a lot to learn from them um, as well, in practice and liturgy. Um, and I'm encouraged by the current Pope. And so I don't mean to like bash or oversimplify um, a religious practice um, of a couple hundred years ago. But this would be the... E- ecosystem or the equation of salvation that Luther would have been wrestling with. Um, I need a priest as a mediator. I pray to the saints for help to navigate life. Um, If I perform the sacraments, not only do I appease God, but I kind of grow into actualized holiness. Um, And now all this is through faith in Christ. And if I do all these things on the left, what I get is the benefits of Christ, which would mostly be heaven. Um, I get to go to heaven. And so a lot of the art of the time, there's like Jesus at the middle, but then over here, there's like angels shooing people up to heaven. And over here, there's like angels like spearing people down to hell. And you're just like sitting in church, like, well, I don't want to be those guys. Like, how do I not be that? Um, And so our salvation becomes this equation um, to receive the benefits of Christ. And I actually, I think there's problems with both sides of that equation. And strangely, if we get the right side of the equation correct, I think the left side of the equation um, makes a lot more sense. And so we need to remember that the gospel literally means good news. And, And one of the things I want to propose is that in order to keep the gospel good news, we need to keep Christ alone, um, on both sides of this equation. Um, And it makes a whole lot more sense when you zoom out and look at God's kingdom. And so we have in the beginning of time, God in a 
Trinitarian relationship of perfect love creates a beautiful world and places man and woman made in his image within this world and gives these guidelines of how to live in God's kingdom. We kind of screw that up, um, and there's this long narrative of God restoring the earth back to his original creation where he is king and we are all living in that way. Um, and so to, when we define salvation as something other than that original state of, of being in union with God, um, and it turns into like using Jesus as a means to get things. Did any of you guys ever have one of those Jesus fish stickers on your car? Maybe you still do. Um, that's totally okay. If you do, um, but I, I think we often go about our business um, and we kind of want to use Jesus for our own assurance and peace of mind, but then also to kind of like, you know, get ahead in life a little bit. Um, I know you think I'm really cool already, but I actually grew up racing BMX, so you can think I'm cooler. Um, and there's a lot of head game in racing BMX, and I would sit, I'm like 12, sitting in like the cues you wait for to, before you go race. And my heart is just like, I'm like, dear Lord, help me to win this race. <laughs> you know, like we are like, well, Jesus is out there. And like, hopefully he can like help me. Um, and I think that's a very kind of a narrow view of salvation is that what it means to be saved is to be reunited into the love of the Father. And the only way we can find that union is through the work of Christ and participating in his relationship with the Father. And this is actually, if we're going to call Scripture alone, this is actually the undergirding motif throughout all of the New Testament. John um, talks about abiding with Christ, and Paul uses the words in Christ um, hundreds of times. So much so that um, I'm like, how do we miss this? How did we view salvation as I say the right prayer, I believe the right things, and that means I get to go to heaven, or on earth I get these certain benefits of, of peace of mind, or like superpowers, you know, or winning the bicycle race. Um, and so, two, two observations as we move forward, um, before we kind of wrap some things up, and the first is this, is to keep Christ alone, uh, we must get the left side correct. So there's a slide here with only, only the left side of the equation. And I really, it, it might be kind of exaggerated, but do you feel like this sometime? That what it means to be saved is to conjure up faith or belief in the correct doctrine about Christ. Um, now you're kind of like locked in. You got your get out of hell free card. Um, now, try really hard <laughs> to do your devotions, to say your prayers, to do the Christian deeds, and maybe to like feel like it's real. And then, yeah, you'll receive whatever you, you want um, on the other side of the equation. And that's kind of the, uh, go back, that's, that's cheating. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Uh, <laughs> We do this spiritually with Christian, de with Christian works, but, it, but it also on like the other side, I mean, we live in Bend. Like, it's kind of nice. I mean, can you imagine if like your house was paid off and your garage like looked like REI and you, you had one of those like Clubman sportsmobile and a Jeep and a Subaru, obviously a Subaru. 
And like, man, I got the job. I make this much a year. I have a, a position of authority. People respect me. My kids are perfect. I go to church. Like, I have backpacks in my garage and snowshoes. And you're basically Daniel Haro, um, especially with the mustache. And uh, we can try really, really hard to manage our life and work the equation to do the right things, to, to manipulate the way we're saved. Um, and, and I don't know, it doesn't look like Christ is alone on that side of the salvation. It doesn't look like we think we're people who need rescuing. It looks like we think we're people who are like almost awesome and like sprinkle a little Jesus on there and we're totally legit. Um, and so the reason your knowledge doesn't save you, your capacity doesn't save you, your, your income or your family dynamics or your Instagram feed or your home decorations, crate and barrel, I don't know what's what stylish around here. The reason these things of yours do not save you is because they are generated by you. The most difficult part about all of this for us is not that we're looking to the Pope for our rescue or past saints or even our pastors, even though, you know, Pete's pretty stylish, uh, or the approval of others. We are incredibly ingrained to look inward to ourselves for our own rescue. We look to to Jesus, and we say, hey, that was really cool what you did back there on the cross. I believe in you. Now let me manage a few things, though. Let me master these things. Let me learn more and discipline more and try harder. Let me find a few more crutches to lean on, a backup plan of security. Let me find it within myself, my discipline, my emotions, my environment. You're cool, Jesus, but I know that we're not okay without me, right? This is the narrative that we get wrapped up in, and I think it's extremely, extremely dangerous. And for those of us with kind of a, a low self-ego, I think we end up looking to the approval of others. Um, but for those of us whose danger is pride, I think we're kind of looking within ourselves and our own strength um, for that rescue. And second observation is to keep Christ alone, we need to get the right side correct. Um, we need freedom. Um, so there's, MJ, you can go to that one now. Um, and this would be the right side being wrong, is that if I do those things on the left, what I'm going to get is the benefits of Jesus, peace, blessing, good luck, um, prosperity, and heaven when I die. Until then, try hard and make converts. Um, and and I, I don't know, I think if you've come to Antioch for the last couple of years, I hope this isn't kind of what you think. Um, but when we define... Um, salvation as being united to Christ, um, I think that breaks down and we find our blessing within our belief of our union with God, which is the way um, things ought to be. And so here's my new slide proposal. Um, this would be it. Christ participates in us, which yields the fact that we participate in Christ, and it is Christ alone who rescues us and it is Christ alone who defines our salvation. Um, you are not, well, I guess there's a we in there and an us, but um, you are not the focal point of that. You are the recipients. Um, and so when we were in Wittenberg, um, I want to show you this painting that is at St. Mary's Church. Um, it's one with Jesus uh, just in the middle. 
Um, and what's really interesting about this painting, I want you to get a quick glance at this, then we're going to come back. So mental note that image, and now MJ, go to the next one. Um, and this is an altar piece. Um, it's very typical. Um, it wasn't one that we saw. But contrast this with Mary and the boy Jesus and other saints on the side, Bartholomew and Luke and angels. Now imagine seeing that at the front of a church and then going to, to this church of Luther and recognizing the contrast. MJ, you can go back to that, to that image. And you'll notice um, uh, the Martin Luther one. You'll notice that Jesus is not behind the pastor. He's in between them. That the pastor is pointing simply to Jesus, uh, who that's Martin Luther, probably towards the end of his life. He got a little chunkier as he went. Um, it would happen to you too if your wife brewed beer in the basement. So, um, And then on the left side is not just saints approaching Jesus, um, but men and women and children and people who don't look special and people with weird beards, um, all can approach Christ. And so this altar is such a contrast. And um, we're in Wittenberg, and which I feel weird saying Wittenberg. You're supposed to say it's a W, but you know those people that say things with accents to sound cool? Like, I'm really not trying to do that. But we're in Wittenberg. We had like an hour to kill before dinner, and I decided to go back to, to St. Mary's uh, where... Um, they would say the first Protestant church service happened where Luther was teaching. Um, and I thought the doors were locked, but I opened them and I heard this organ playing. And there happened to be like a concert going on. Um, and so I went and I sat in the back and I just sat and I stared at this painting in Germany, hearing this beautiful organ for a couple minutes. That stopped and then this whole choir went to the front of the church and they're like a concert, and they were just singing with these beautiful voices, and I got to sit here in this church that, that, that shaped the way you and I understand what it means to know Jesus. Um, I got to stare at this painting, um, and, and I don't know, I, I kind of had one of those moments. You ever have one of those moments? Yeah. Um, and so that painting means a lot to you, and, and I, I think it should shape our, our theology. So Lastly, I want to ask the question, like, what if we actually lived, what if we lived like this was true? Um, and so I got a final slide. Um, and the first is that I think within our anxiety, we would trade busyness for rest. I, I don't know about you. Did you feel like this summer was just exceptionally busier than all the other ones? I, everyone I talked to was like, I'm so busy this summer. And we go from thing to thing to thing. Like, Why? What are we hoping to accomplish? And is there, is there a certain salvation narrative behind your workaholism, behind the crazy schedules? What do our priorities say about who we believe saves us? Um, and I think uh, as much as anxiety and uh, depression are this like, widespread problem in the U.S. right now, um, and I, I respect like, the difficulty of, of that mess to feel it, but I, I really think if we believed this, we would find rest for our souls, we would find peace, we would find that the burden is easy, and that the yoke um, is still a yoke, but it, it feels good. Um, secondly, I think our evangelism, that we would trade formulas for witness, and so um, our kind of this endeavor to save souls to go to heaven 
um, would become a lifestyle that witnesses to the beautiful salvation that we believe. Like, hey, guess what? I've been rescued, you know, in Christ. Not like, hey, you should totally believe these things um, about how to get saved. Um, And then last and maybe the most robust is that we would trade commodities for opportunities. And so rather than looking to our job to give us salvation, rather than looking inside of us to give us salvation or people or our money or our resources, and we're trying to manipulate the, the world around us to find salvation, all of those things become opportunities to build God's kingdom. Um, and so your job isn't just something to build your identity and your purpose and your value and your ego. It's a place with other people who it's ingrained in the community um, that's teaching you a skill and a trade and putting you shoulder to shoulder with other people. And it's beautiful. And so to view the world around us as an opportunity to bring the good news of Christ alone rather than to manipulate um, for our own salvation. Paul, later in Galatians, says this in chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up to rescue me. So each Sunday after the sermon, we participate and we receive uh, the Lord's table, or you might call it the Eucharist, or um, what else do we call it? It's communion. <laughs> I know that word. Um, and if, if you'll notice, this is, I think this is a Pete doing, there's this painting. Um, it's by Rublev, and it's a picture of the Trinity, and they're at a table. It's not on the screen. You can see it when you come and receive communion. And, and the idea is that it's an invitation to mirror Christ and participate in the love of the Father. That when we have communion with the Father, we are invited to his table. We are invited to participate in the life and death of Christ so that we can participate in Christ's union with the Father. And the only prerequisite for receiving um, the table today is that you recognize your need to be rescued in the past, in the present, and in the future. And we're, we're proclaiming that it's through Christ alone that we find the salvation. So let me pray for us, and then I invite you um, to reflect and receive uh, the Lord's table. Father, we are, we are busy, and in many ways we are stressed, and we are pulled in a thousand directions, and sometimes the anxiety can can trap us, and we confess our temptation to look within for salvation, to manipulate the recipe, um, and receive your benefits. Would you help our brains and our hearts and our actions to actually believe that you have participated in our life, that we have died with you, that we have resurrected with you, and that the love that the Father has for you is the love that the Father has for us. In your name, amen.